to Maritime AgCast, the podcast dedicated to the farmers and the farm community of the Maritimes. We will discuss all things related to the livestock industry with local, regional and national guests, as well as keep you up to date with current markets and industry events. Today we'll be joined by Rebecca Archbold and Jillian Ben to discuss young producers who have undergone farm transition, access to farm equity and barriers and challenges they experienced during the transition process. Rebecca and her husband, Alex, live in Upper Stuyak on a dairy farm with their baby girl, Amelia. They bought the farm through the DFNS New Enter program from her grandparents in 2017. Rebecca works full-time off-farm at the Troyager Mart, is a current president of the Nova Scotia Young Farmers and sits on the Nova Scotia Agricultural Youth Council. She grew up in a beef farm, went through the 4-H program, and received her BSc in business from Dalhousie Agriculture Campus in 2014. Jillian grew up on her family's dairy farm in the Annapolis Valley. With her agricultural roots, she attended Dalhousie's Faculty of Agriculture, graduating in 2017 with a Bachelor of Agricultural Science, majoring in Agricultural Business, and a double minor in Economics and Plant Science. After university, Jillian traveled to New Zealand and worked on a dairy farm that milked 540 cows, where she worked for five months and explored the country on her days off. Following her time abroad, Jillian settled back to her family's dairy farm, where they milk 110 cows. Jillian is currently amid succession planning with her older brother. So thanks, Jillian and Rebecca, for being with us today. Appreciate taking your time and special guest, Amelia, as well. Looking forward to chatting with you today and in about 20 more years when you're ready for uh, another farm transition. So maybe, Jill, we'll start with you. Can you describe where your farm is, what you farm, and why you do it? Hi, Brad. Thanks for having me today. And my farm is in Middleton, Nova Scotia. So it's David Bent Farms Limited. And currently, my brother and I are in transition. We've started the succession planning. We're a dairy farm and we milk 110 cows, roughly. So yeah, we've started to talk and my parents are both shareholders, but my brother and I are starting the process of buying into the farm and looking to grow in the future. And Rebecca, how about you? Yeah, so thanks for having me today. Um, So my husband, Alex, and I bought uh, my grandparents' dairy farm in 2017. So we've been going at it for a few years now. But we uh, we acquired the farm through the new entrant program through DFNS. So it was a a little bit of a a unique situation um, in terms of the way that we did the transition. Um, But uh, yeah, so we milked 34 purebred Holsteins here in the original tie stall barn that we did a bit of renovating to and we do all grass silage round baled ourselves I guess that's kind of us in a nutshell and this is my our daughter Amelia she's six months old so she's uh, joining us today hopefully she cooperates but she's usually pretty happy-go-lucky so we'll see how it goes <laughs> excellent thanks very much so um, interesting, a, a little bit of different approach for both of you. It seems, Rebecca, your farm almost skipped a, a generation somewhere along the way where Jillian, you're, you're kind of that traditional generation to generation. Can you talk about some of the challenges in those generational discussions that you may have either initially when you started talking about the succession? Yeah. So originally my brother was going to take over the farm and that was all decided. And I was going to agricultural college as well. And one day he sat me down and he saw I had an interest in it and he opened the door for me as well. Uh, I didn't want to step on toes, but I was happy to take the invitation to come back. And I'm happy 
still today to have taken that step. My dad always was a huge supporter of both me and my brother. And we actually have an older brother. So that's kind of a challenge. He doesn't want to be a partner. And so that's been very clear. But obviously, uh, with us taking equity in the business and him not, the challenge is how to make things fair in my parents' will, as bad as that sounds. But, you know, for him in the future, because obviously, we're getting the farm at a discount to market price. So if it were to be sold, he would get a lot more profit from it too. Uh, so it's just a weird and awkward conversations because they're conversations you don't want to talk about. You don't want to think about stuff like that. But generally speaking, our family has been all on the same page. So we've, we've been very fortunate because I know a lot of times that doesn't happen generation to generation. And uh, my dad is very open-minded to new technologies and uh, very forward thinking. So he's been great too. So in our case, um, I was at the AC as well. And my husband was working on his home dairy farm. And we, I guess, just kind of were living that life. And my grandfather approached us to see if we'd be interested in taking over the farm because he knew that (laughs) Alex kind of lived and breathed dairy. And he just kind of gave us that opportunity, both of his children, my aunt and my mother had both kind of moved on to their own, their own lives and were not interested in taking over the farm. So we kind of were the only option for him. So it uh, kind of just went from there and we just started discussions, you know, kind of what each side needed to make it work. And we had a lot of more formal discussions with DFNS kind of to see what made the most sense in terms of making the quota transaction. And that's kind of where we got directed to the the new entrant program. And we talked to the farm loan board, as well as Yvonne Tyson Post for succession planning. And just she helped a lot with facilitating the conversations. And uh, we were able to kind of make the deal from that. So we didn't have, I guess, as Brad mentioned, like the skipped generation. So it was a little easier in a way, like we, we weren't working with my grandfather, we, it was kind of like, you know, here's the deal and it's done. And he was done and we were, we bought the farm. So Alex did technically work for him for two years before we moved over and, and actually bought the farm. And um, that was kind of instrumental in our case, just with the new entrant program, we had to do a business plan um, as part of the application, which is really, I'm glad, glad that we did because um, that kind of made us see what things were going to be like. And we were kind of forced to make a few changes that we were able to do. Luckily in those two years that Alex was working for my grandfather, we did some runouts to the barn. Um, we were able to get some, it kind of improved the genetics of the herd, bring some other cows in and, and kind of see how those changes cropping changes as well. See how those changes were going to affect the operation to kind of, so that we would know whether it was something that we were, we were going to be able to do or not. So that was a big, uh, a big plus in our case um, that we were able to do that. So both of you mentioned something really interesting there. And I think it's often where sometimes succession or transition can be a bit of a challenge and that's maybe different or new management ideas or principles. So Jill, you said that your your father's very open to new technologies and new principles. Rebecca, you mentioned your grandfather Donnie, very open to helping with some of the transition and you folks did some some upgrades and cropping changes. How important was that in the smoothness of the transition? Because I think we've all seen, especially between generations, where that 
agreement on shifting management from one generation to the other hasn't gone as smoothly? Yeah, for us, it was extremely important. My brother was not planning on coming home to the farm and neither was I. There was no succession plan in place when we started at agricultural college. So at that point in my dad's life, uh, he was younger and he was kind of gearing down. So he hadn't done the improvements to the farm that needed to be done. He was, you know, not expanding the herd. He wasn't expanding the facilities. And the second he heard that my brother wanted to come home, we built a new calf barn. They were in hutches before. So we put that in and then we were milking in a third hand parlor that my dad had bought. And it was a double four and we were milking 110 cows in it. We were doing two and a half milkings a day. It was taking us 12 hours. So we switched to robotic milkers and that was huge because uh, we also did a barn expansion where we added some more stalls and just made the whole facility work a lot better and improved our production. And it set Chad and us, or my brother Chad and I up for where we want to be when, when we take it over. So we can work on, you know, fine tuning things or growing the herd and not just, you know, trying to make do with what, what's there. So for us, it was, it was very crucial. So I'm going to switch gears um, a little bit and maybe talk about some producer demographics. So the first thing I want to touch on is you folks are obviously both in regions that there, there's a fair amount of farming, but not a lot of dairy farming, right? You're, you're not in the Shuby Corridor, you're not in Antigonish. So what type of supports have you seen or what type of you know, feedback have you got from you know, the select few dairy farmers that are in your kind of immediate areas? that you might not have the same concentration of producers to lean on if you did need extra support with feeding or labor or something. How do you think that's affected or does affect your overall farm in the transition? So like I said, my dad is still very active on the farm. So he's been the biggest person we lean on, which is home base. Um, He's on the farm, but we do have a dairy farm about a half hour away and he'll come and do our custom cropping for our corn every year. He, he's also, uh, he stops in quite often. And my dad and him are always talking DFNS and where, where it's going and what's the next step and what do you want to see? And very uh, interactive with me and my brother as well, trying, you know, oh, you should apply to be on the board and be more uh, involved in the committees and stuff. And I think right now we're both just trying to get our, our, our feet on the ground and get settled at home first. But uh, it's nice to have him and my uncles right down the road if we if we did need help there and there's a couple around us too but but yeah I'd say my dad's the biggest support and he's right at home so so maybe not leaning on neighbors as much but leaning on dad because he I don't know when he'll ever retire (laughs) he's very active (laughs) yeah so we have uh, a few farms dairy farms uh pretty close by one or I guess two on either side one on either side of us um that uh you know we've gone back and forth with for help and and that's kind of nice to know that you have that support there you know if you got a cow down or you you know you need something um they're just you know literally 30 seconds away so um it is nice to have that support and they were all uh very supportive when we took over and excited to see the farm keep going and you know see young people and, you know, taking it over and all that. Um, And I mean, I grew up in this community, so everyone was pretty excited and supportive overall, I would say. 
And both of us have family. All, all of our immediate family is within half an hour of here, um, which is also really nice. So all of Alex's family, um, he has four siblings and as well as his parents are all on dairy farms within half an hour from us. So, you know, we have those supports as well. Um, we're able to kind of share gear a little bit if we need it. And it's nice because two of his family members have robots. So sometimes we end up getting some cows that don't work out in the robot. They can come here to the tie stall and, and things like that. So um, that that's worked out really well for us. And we're pretty close to, to Shuby and, and Truro. Um, and we're both pretty active in the industry outside of our farm. So I feel like we do have quite a few connections that way like we're in touch with the industry one of Alex's brothers is on the DFNS board I work at the Agamart so I I deal with all the dairy farmers across the province most of the time so it's uh and, and nowadays it's so easy to connect with people so the other demographics part that I'd like to touch on briefly is just the average age of dairy producers is is starting to creep down a little bit and maybe that's just from me outside looking in I see a lot of owners and managers that are in your demographic, kind of mid-20s, early to mid-30s. There are a few kind of my age, early 40s. Um, But we've seen a lot of that transition happen in the last 10 years, and we'll probably see a a bunch more in the next four or five. And I know that you've both gone to to Dow. So what does that network mean? The fact that you've grown up with these folks in 4-H, you've probably gone to school with a lot of them. Um, what does that network mean in your overall farm management and how you approach things and share information? For me, locally, there isn't a lot of people I know that I guess I went to high school with that stayed on their dairy farms or that are actively dairy farming right around me. There's a few. But for me, um, going to AC was huge. I met so many people and, and everybody was so excited to go home to their farms. So I guess seeing them being eager about an industry that you know isn't the easiest to uh to be in you know working seven days a week and not uh not getting your holidays or your family time away so it's it's nice to to have those people and and uh, I guess social media has made it nice too because you're seeing what other people are doing and in real time you know if they get a new piece of equipment or they're trying something new on their farm uh Oftentimes they'll they'll be excited about it and they'll post about it. I still talk to a lot of the people I went to school with. So if we're having an issue or need a recommendation, then I've got a lot of contacts I can reach out to. So that's been great. Jill had some good points there. So I like Jill, I never planned to be involved in farming or agriculture at all (laughs) until I went to the AC. I got a full scholarship there and it was close to home. So that's where I ended up going. And I was just going to do a science degree. And I got there and met all these people that were so excited and passionate about the industry. And I just kind of saw like what more there was kind of like, opened my eyes to what the industry was and and how important it was and what opportunities there were for for me in it. And uh, I ended up doing an ag business degree there with a minor in animal science. And then of course I met Alex as well. And it's just funny how life turns out, but there's just so many people that I went to school with or that even went to school at the AC ahead of me, but you know, the agriculture industry in the Maritimes and in the province is so small that you, you know, you end up knowing them, whether you directly went to school with them or 
you know, if they're directly your peers or not, you kind of end up being in the same circles. And um, with social media, like Jill mentioned, it's just so easy to stay connected and, and keep up on what other people are doing. And it is really nice to be able to, um, to get new ideas and kind of see things that you could bring back to your own farm. And I think that's a big part of being young farmers today is being able to, to share those ideas, because there's just so many efficiencies I guess that need to be met to be able to be sustainable now it seems. In upcoming events Nova Scotia Open Farm Day will be online and in person this year on September 18th. For more information visit AtlanticOpenFarmDay.ca. The New Brunswick Beef Expo will happen on September 24th and 25th at the Princess Louise Park Centre in Sussex, New Brunswick. For full details visit nbbeefexpo.com. On September 26th, Perennial will be hosting Cultivate Cover Crops Workshop, where they discuss cover crop species selection, inter-row seeding, and more. Visit perennia.ca to register for this event. The Ballamore Farm Shoreline event will take place on October 10th in Great Village at the farm. Check out their Facebook for more details. The Atlantic Alliance production sale will occur on October 22nd in Nepan, Nova Scotia. Follow their Facebook page for more information. Maritime Beef Conference will occur October 21st and 22nd at the Delta Hotels by Marriott Beausejour in Moncton, New Brunswick. Stay up to date on registration information at maritimebeef.ca. Feeder sales at Atlantic Stockyards will occur this fall on Tuesday mornings at 10 a.m. Additionally, there will be a specialized sheep and goat sale on September 15th and a breeding stock sale on October 29th. Please check AtlanticStockyards.com for full sales schedule and booking information. In programs, the Nova Scotia cattle producers have two programs available for the 2022 year. The Nova Scotia Genetic Improvement Program, the Nova Scotia Soil Pasture and Forage Management Program. Both programs have an application deadline of November 30th. Additional information can be found at nscattle.ca. There are many Nova Scotia programs open to farmers for 2022, such as the Cattle and Sheep Industry Development Program and the Wildlife Mitigation Program. For a complete list of programs, as well as applications and guidelines, please visit novascotia.ca forward slash programs. And in New Brunswick, uh, the New Brunswick cattle producers have multiple programs available, including the Beef Herd Renewal and Improvement Program, the Beef Rotational Grazing Initiative, and many more. For more information on all of these programs, please visit gnb.ca forward slash agriculture. Interesting point that you just made, Rebecca, and it actually parallels the reason I ended up at the AC and stayed there is, you know, I, I got a full scholarship. I decided I wanted to be an accountant at, at one point in my life. I'm glad I didn't do that. But same thing. It was close by scholarship. And then I got there and decided that I'm surrounded by great people who are very enthusiastic, energetic, passionate about something. So that's what kept me there and ended up doing economics. Right. So I, I think sometimes we don't give Dal AC or the NS former NSAC quite the credit it deserves for attracting non-ag people or ag people who are actually looking to leave the industry to come back and forming those lifetime bonds and um, very specific skills. So um, I always like when I hear somebody else with a, a similar story to me. So, uh, just switching gears a little bit and and this is probably maybe more specific to the SM5 groups and, and dairy. And just to talk a little bit about access to equity. So there are several barriers to uh, new entrants or farm succession. Uh, obviously, money's the biggest one. But in the quota system, access to that quota becomes a secondary challenge. So, you know, 
without divulging any specific farm financials, what were some of the biggest challenges in the farm purchase process or that transition in young producers accessing capital that may not have the background equity that they need to have to invest in a farm operation? I guess we're in a bit of a different situation and we're looking at it a little different. So instead of my brother and I taking out huge loans and buying out my parents up front, we're actually basically the farm's going to buy out my parents. The farm's going to take on more debt, basically, and buy out my parents over time. So as the farm, Chad and I will make a payment to my parents monthly for so many years and that payment will come from the farm Um, and then eventually when the farm's ours Chad and I have to pay back the money and making sure that the farm is sustainable so it kind of works as a retirement plan too for my parents uh, like uh, money wise ours is going to be a long process equity for us is going to be easier to get Um, obviously if you know with COVID and everything things get tighter and with the price of fuel and fertilizer things get tighter so you don't want to put the farm in a financial position it, it can't with the uh, hold we haven't started the payments yet we're going we're, we're doing everything that we need to do before we get there so we've been dealing with life insurance for the past months <laughs> it's a long process but essentially the accountant will freeze the what the farm's worth today and we're going to pay out that price total so obviously the farm hopefully will be worth more and um, what at the time we're done finished paying it off but Basically, the farm's going to take on more debt to buy out my parents. So we n- we're not going to have to take out personal loans, which will be very helpful. Uh, so in our case, with um, with the new entrant program, that was probably the biggest help for us in terms of, of getting quota when we started. The downside is it was kind of cap. Well, it is capped. So that program only allows you to buy so much quota if you want to access the, the quota loan that is the program so it, it worked for the farm we bought because the size of it, it it fit those numbers perfectly um so it it's kind of um it, it worked for us but there was a lot of quota on the exchange available at the time in the years leading up to when we bought the farm and since we bought the farm there hasn't been any so um we haven't been able to to grow at all so we've all we've been able to focus on is increasing our efficiencies and trying to cut costs and when you get a year like like right now it makes it hard for sure so it's yeah that's definitely definitely a challenge um we've tried a few different things like when we first started we did all custom cropping a lot the gear that was on the farm was really old and neither one of us are very mechanically inclined so we went the cropping route or the custom cropping route and in at the time that was that worked really well because the amount that we paid for custom cropping for the whole year was less than what my grandfather paid for maintenance and and repairs <laughs> the year before so it just that, that was the way to go um and over the five six years that we've been doing it we've been able to acquire our own equipment so we are able to do all of our own bales now which which is a big help um just with our location and our size when you're relying on custom guys you know we you'd have to knock the whole farm down at once, whether it was all ready to go or not. And, you know, you're at their mercy, right? So when they say that they can come fit you in, that's when they're coming. So it's not ideal. So we were happy to get away from that and be able to kind of access some equipment to do that on our own. But yeah, quota is definitely the, the holdup, I guess, right now. Yeah. So let's talk about quota a little bit more and not to get into the kind of the whole political side of it, but obviously, for, especially for young producers that are looking to expand 
you know, the almost net zero amount quota that hits the exchange in a month. How does that impact your long-term planning uh, or even short-term planning on some of those expansion plans or even in the transition, right? If you're if you're looking to build equity, looking to gain efficiencies, you often do that with additional production. So how, how do you manage that, not just now, but in the future? Yeah, this is something we've been talking about a lot lately. So the size of our farm right now, the quota holdings we have are perfect, but obviously one day we'd love to put a third robot in and we're maxing out the two robots we have now. So that would be amazing. But uh, I guess what in our minds, the next step, if quota is like we're bidding every month on quota, but it's not coming up is to buy more land and do more cropping because, uh, you know, you got to keep growing. Eventually, if we do get the quota, one of the holdups would be we wouldn't have enough land. So until then, we'll buy, keep trying to buy land or clear land anyway. We, we brought 25, 30 acres into production in three years ago, and we're working on another 20 acres at the same piece that we cleared. And we were, got another piece that we're clearing now as well. The price of land, obviously has gone up in our area too. So that's made it hard. It's hard to cash flow a mortgage on a on a piece of land when your main product is usually forage for your cattle. You can't do that. So unless we're doing a lot more custom cropping, more grains and stuff, that's that's our next step. But yeah, we, we want to acquire more land. That's our thought process. And hopefully quote more quota comes up. There's no regulations coming in i'm not sure what that means for how much quota will be on the market or with the number of days below your quota allowance being pushed up i don't know people are gonna be incentivized to sell a few more kilograms or not i i hope everybody is able to meet their quota and not have to sell that that is the goal I- yeah so for us we're kind of trying to diversify a little bit alex has always been really passionate about the genetic side of things and buying and selling, you know, high quality Holsteins. So that market is kind of on the upswing again right now. Alex, you know, he's got quite a few contacts across the Maritimes and, and upcountry a bit as well. So he, he's got a strong eye for cows. I, I don't, but (laughs) he, uh, that, that's kind of his thing. So we're trying to kind of get some cash influx into the farm on on that advantage on our own genetics like selling our own genetics as well as kind of buying and selling around like he can kind of fill a void if he already has you know if there's someone that's looking for some more cows if they need some fresh cows Alex kind of goes around and and finds some so we're trying to kind of get a little bit of influx in in that way right now um you know with without a substantial amount of more quota, we won't be able to build a new barn. And that's kind of one of our limiting factors right now too. You know, we have a lot of manual labor here and feed our round bales out by hand. The barn is pretty small. So things like that, that can't really change until we're in a point where we can build a barn. And right now that's a long ways off. So just, I'm going to eventually transition into uh, our current state of input costs. But before we go there, I'd like to touch a little bit more on land. So we've seen really hot real estate markets, including land across North America, but I think especially in Nova Scotia, as we saw folks migrate from central Canada uh, and Western Canada, either back home or, or to the region. And that's put significant uh, upwards pressure on land prices. And you're both in regions where land is already fairly dear. And Jill, you said that it's more of a challenge and it's really hard to cash flow, especially with the production, primarily forage production and not a lot of cash cropping. So maybe just touch 
quickly, if you are looking to expand, what's actually available or or what could be available in your regions as that is, other than quota, that's probably your biggest limiting factor. For us, there are a few pieces available or there have been in the, the past couple of years. Unfortunately and fortunately, we live um, fairly close to Middleton, the town. Um, so since we're so close to the town limits, a lot of the land we've been using is zoned for commercial use. So for that reason, pieces of land have gone above, you know, farming prices. And there's a they've been bought for developmental reasons. The people that bought them have been nice enough to give us another year. And we're very thankful for that. Uh, we'll be out of two pieces of land next year that we've had for quite a few years now. There's another large piece that came up, but it's out of our price range. And, you know, we'd love to have it, but we can't go bankrupt trying to buy it. And the interest rates are growing up already. So it's hard to buy something at a price you're uncomfortable with and then hope that in five years time, if you're, you know, redoing the mortgage on it, that interest rates are at a place that's still doable. So for us, I guess land clearing right now is our biggest asset. We do have our own excavator on the farm. And my brother who isn't buying into the farm, but he works for us full time right now. He's very good on heavy equipment. So he's actually been doing a lot of the land clearing for us. And that's been a huge asset. We'll keep looking for land and who knows what the next couple of years hold with inflation and everything, but hopefully we'll be able to buy land in, in the future. But right now it's just a little, little bit too high and a little uncomfortable, I guess, to pay that price. Uh, yeah, so with us, we um, we have quite a bit of woodland as part of the farm as well that, that can be cleared. If we get to that point, we have enough cropping land right now to sustain the size we're at. So I guess we're just kind of sitting still in that regard. It's it's there to grow when we need to, I guess. There's also quite a bit of land in the valley like in, around us that most of it's being used, but there is quite a bit that I think could be pretty available if we get to the point of needing more. So I guess it's not a huge concern for us right now. And long-term, I think there's options there. We're just not really quite to the point of, of needing to, uh, to take advantage of those. Here's the market report brought to you by Atlantic Stockyards Limited. Atlantic Stockyards Limited has been Atlantic Canada's major livestock market for over 60 years. The stockyards attract buyers regionally as well as extending into central Canada. Livestock auctions occur every Thursday with cattle, sheep, goats, hogs, rabbits and poultry all featured. Additional information such as previous market reports, feeder sale dates and vaccination forms can be found on AtlanticStockyards.com. For the week ended September 9th, 2022, in the local hog market, base price in Nova Scotia was $2.63 per kilogram, down 22.8 cents from last week. In Ontario, base price was down 22.8 cents from last week to a price of $2.54 per kilogram. In the Quebec market, base price was $2.12 per kilogram, down 28.8 cents. On the fed cattle side, fed cattle price at Atlantic Beef Products was $2.99, holding steady since early August. In Ontario, live steers sold for $1.78, moving up one cent from last week. Call cattle Atlantic Stockyards sold for $1.08, an upward change of nine cents from last week, while rail price was flat at $1.96 at Atlantic Beef Products. Calls in Ontario averaged $1, up two cents from the prior week, and 88 cents in Quebec, moving down one cent. Good dairy bob calves between 90 and 120 pounds at Atlantic Stockyards averaged $55, down $4. And good dairy beef bob calves averaged $175, down $68 from last week. Meanwhile, calves in Ontario were up two cents to a price of $1.16 per pound. 
Calves in Quebec were 221, an increase of 16 cents per pound. Base price for lambs at Northumberland sits at $11 per kilogram and mutton sits at $6.50 per kilogram. 50 to 64 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards averaged $2.34 per pound at 55 pounds, ranging from $2.15 to $2.55. In Ontario, 50 to 64 pound lambs averaged $2.41 per pound at 59 pounds, ranging from $1.95 to $2.90. For 65 to 79 pound lambs at Atlantic Stockyards, they averaged 208 per pound at 76 pounds, ranging from $2 to 220. And in Ontario, 65 to 79 pound lambs averaged 236 per pound at 73 pounds, ranging from $1.65 to 285. Use at Atlantic Stockyards were $125. And in Ontario, use averaged $1.57 at 141 pounds, ranging from 87 cents to 227 and a half. Make sure you check the association websites for additional pricing information. So we've talked a little bit about rising input costs. Um, and Rebecca, I know you kind of see both sides of this equation with your work at the Agrimart as well. And I think just yesterday, the Canadian Dairy Commission announced that there'll be a, a, a milk price increase by I think two and a half percent on September 1st. And that follows uh, an increase earlier this year. You know, I, I don't think it actually covers off the actual inflationary rate that folks have seen. But can you talk a little bit about, especially as fairly new entrants or, or that transition, how the culmination of buying into the farm, rising input costs, market uncertainty, like this is kind of a, a hectic time over the last couple of years and into the next five years. How do you sleep at night? We love what we do, obviously. <laughs> right? Isn't that what everyone says? No, if we didn't, you know, this would be the time to sell. A couple of months ago, dairy farm prices are crazy around here. So obviously we're all crazy about what we do. <laughs> uh, we did you know, everybody had a lot of government help last year and that obviously helped. There was, you know, wage subsidies and, and the dairy DPP, I think it is, from the recent trade agreement. So those help. But, you know, you hear it in the media that dairy farmers get an 8% increase and then they get another increase. And how am I going to afford dairy and why do they need more money? But a lot of our inputs have gone up 100 200%. It doesn't cover it. It doesn't add up. And, you know, you look at other items in the grocery store and they're going up too and buy as much or more as what we are. So um, I guess, it, yeah, uh, I guess Rebecca's had a lot of good points of, you know, creating efficiencies. And, you know, one of the things that we're trying our best to do is not buy new. Historically, we don't buy much new equipment. We buy a lot of used equipment, but don't buy anything that we don't need right now. And, you know, try to keep the payments down just kind of ride through the, the COVID inflation wave. And, and hopefully right now we're, we are in a good spot and we hope that these next couple of years don't, don't hit us too hard. Yeah, it definitely uh, causes some, some hard and sleepless nights. <laughs> it's uh, like you said, with the, the debt of taking over the farm um, in our case, um, we took over five years ago. So, you know, we're kind of, into a place now we've been in it a few years getting things kinks worked out and um you know payments are all managed and and then you get the input costs rising and it just kind of feels like it's working against you but like Jill said we love what we do and <laughs> gonna gonna try our hardest to stick it out so you know and as a consumer going to the grocery store it's you know it's hard so it's uh you know everyone's kind of in the same boat one way or another, farmers unfortunately seem to bear the the brunt of it all. They're at the bottom of the the ladder, but these increases 
obviously we need them. I just, I hope we can get to a point where they're kind of more regular and more reflective of the current needs and current costs of production and that it doesn't get so blown out of proportion in the media. Maybe that would be great. <laughs> I, I think that's a really valid point. And, you know, I, you, you mentioned you, you walk in the grocery store and the price of everything is up, whether it's bananas or bread or beef or pork or chicken, whatever the case may be. I, and I think that often dairy gets unwarranted attention uh, because of the regulation structure and the fact that the CDC has to come out and announce the price increase, that it draws a lot more attention than, you know, general price increases in the store that you wouldn't know unless you check prices every day. And, you know, there, there are enough challenges for you folks and farmers in general that some of that public public spotlight put on particularly milk prices is is an additional challenge that we don't really need. Yeah, I agree. I don't really like to look at the news that much, like in regards to that, because it it does pass and people do forget about it. But, you you know, people you're around that aren't in the industry, you know, uh, family and friends and stuff, you know, they're all excited because we got an 8% increase and we're like, wow, thank you for the 8% increase. (laughs) It does not cover what we're paying. Actually, I I should have mentioned this in the last question. My dad um, recently in taking part in the dairy cost of production. So he's done a lot of work recording everything, all our costs. Uh, The accountants have been back and forth with the people that are doing it. And um, he had to record all our hours for the year and how much time we spend on different things and how much insurance we have and the amount of things that he had to give those (laughs) the people doing it was was insane like he put a lot of time and effort and he did a really good job and I'm happy he did because you know that's how they how we get our increases is telling the truth showing what the market is like and what we're paying and the crazy overhead costs that come with dairy farming um but yeah no as far as the media and obviously um obviously the the tax that come against us for getting you know the bare minimum in a covid covid uh world uh it's uh it's a little disheartening to, for people to think that we're being greedy when really we're just you know trying to keep canadian milk alive absolutely so i'm going to switch gears here maybe one last time one of the other things i think we've seen generally in in nova scotia is uh, the foreign purchase of dairy farms. So there have been a few farms in the last year or so that have been purchased by uh, new immigrants to Canada. Is that anything that concerns you folks in the availability of farms for your purchase? Or is it a case of we're happy to see that this is a, a continuing farm operation to supply high quality safe milk for our friends and neighbors? I guess both for me, you know, I I love to see them survive. I love keep a farm going and I'm really happy that um, some farmers came in and and bought those farms and kept them going and that the prices that the dairy farmers that sold were, were great. But I guess my concern is for new entrants, for example, Rebecca bought her grandfather's farm, but if he had put it on the market, would she have been able to? not saying anything but uh but you know some some of the prices of some of the farm you can't cash flow them unless you have a lot of equity coming in for us we've talked about buying a second farm smaller obviously than what we have 
and and you know expanding our quota that way because it's so hard to purchase that you could purchase a second farm but you know you work numbers and you figure out what you could pay and how much debt their farm might have and what their quota holdings how much you'd get a month and and you figure out a number and it sounds great and then you look at what the market is and think about what they could get if they sold from to somebody coming from overseas and you realize it might not be fair to them <laughs> so i guess yes i'm happy the farms kept going but I feel for people, local people that are trying to get into farming or grow their own operations too. I as well have mixed feelings. Uh, you obviously don't want to lose another farm. Unfortunately, that's the only way for the current farms to grow right now. And I think there's, <laughs> there's a lot of farms in the province of the less than 200 now dairy farms that want to grow. And just that fact alone means that no one's going to be able to. <laughs> because there's not going to be any quota on the exchange for that to happen unless there's market increases. So it's just, it's kind of a catch 22, I guess. And yeah, it's just one of those things. Like we, I think probably every farmer in Nova Scotia and Canada is, uh, is in support of a supply management system, but you know, it's not perfect, right? There's obviously limitations to it. Like, like being able to grow in a situation like this and Nova Scotia, especially, I think, you know, we have so few farms anyway, we're such a small province, you know, we don't want to see fewer, bigger farms, you know, as a, as a general rule, you don't want to see people have to sell out, but at the same time, we need that quota to be able to grow ourselves. So it's kind of a trying to find that balance on how we can all be successful and sustainable, either at the size we're at or, or how do we grow without, um, without losing other farms and, you were talking about having um, people coming in from outside the country or the province to buy farms. Again, it's great to see it keep going. Um, but I think there's a lot of people in the province that would love to be able to dairy farm and can't because of access to equity or um, whatever, you know, all, all the challenges that we're talking about, there's people on family farms that would like to buy their own farm and, and can't, right? So um, whether that's restrictions with the new entrant program or with quota transfers or with just can't get the money to buy it. So it's kind of sad to see people coming in because they have more money or they can sell their farm for more money and move here and buy a farm for half the price and have less debt than any of the farms here that have been going for 60 years. <laughs> so, you know, that's kind of frustrating too, but yes, yes and no. <laughs> yeah. Definitely appreciate those insights and maybe just a wrap up question here. What advice or key piece of information would you say or would you give to someone who's looking to start the discussion with their their family um, whether it's a father mother uncle grandparent on taking over the farm or to a new entrant that's looking to get in the dairy world what is the key piece that they should keep in mind as they go through the transition or, or purchasing process I think like I said we were a unique situation, I feel, because my family was all on the same page from day one. But for other farms, I guess, and people trying to get in, I would say take advantage of the professional supports available to you. There's a lot of funding and there's a lot of professionals that go through with every time. One of the hardest things to do is take the emotion out of it and have a fair deal at the end of it. So those professional people, you know, that's what they do. Like I said, yeah, we were very fortunate and we did we still did use professional supports and are to this day. So, so yeah, that'd be my advice. 
I'll, I agree with Jill on the professionals. Um, when we first started our discussions and we, you know, we talked to, to lenders and we talked to um, DFNS and Yvonne Tyson posts for succession planning and, you know, crop input people. And there's just experts all around us, right? And our, our province is very fortunate that we do have a lot of, of professional people in the industry. So, you know, I think the worst thing you can do is just kind of keep to yourself and, you know, think that you should know everything because you sh- there's no way you can know everything. Um, but there's lots of people like Jill mentioned around that, that can help and that's their job and they're good at it. So take advantage of those supports because they do make all the difference. But in terms of, of a piece of advice, I, I feel like I would be to, to really crunch the numbers and, and do an in-depth cash flow. And, and if you have to, you know, get someone professional to help you with that, then, then do it. And, you know, trust those numbers and really read into them. I feel like people can sometimes get into a bit of a bubble and think, oh no, it'll be fine. It'll be fine. And, and it, and it might, and it, and it probably will. I mean, we all get through it one way or another, but, uh, but yeah, just, just know those numbers and kind of be prepared, I guess is Jill, Rebecca, Amelia. I'd like to thank you all very much for joining us today and look forward to uh, maybe another discussion in the future. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much. Don't want to miss any future episodes? Subscribe to a Maritime Acast today through Anchor, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your other favorite podcast platform. This concludes another episode of Maritime Agcast. We would like to thank our producer, the Agri-Commodity Management Association, Director Ashley, as well as Matt Whitehour and Micah Dahl-Anderson of ArchesAudio.com for providing the music you heard during this episode. Until next time, happy farming and keep feeding the Maritimes.